You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. So happy Wednesday and welcome to NAM 38. It's so nice to see everyone here in person finally. And um, before we begin, I'd like to first start by acknowledging the country. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and the Boonwurrung Boonwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet. We pay our respects to their elders, their ancestors and their land, past, present and future. We'd also like to state our purpose for meeting on this land. Our intention is to host an event where we respectfully speak with and learn from architects who have contributed towards social change. We respectfully acknowledge how fortunate we are to be able to host this event on this land. We'd like to even invite everyone here today to spend a moment to acknowledge their purpose for being here and what it means for them to be here on this land. Um, a couple of thank yous and shout outs. So first thanks to M Pavilion and their team. They have been really gracious to put together this event and it's always really nice to keep coming back to the space each year. Um, so thanks again. The next thanks for Grace McKellar, the person who designs NAMS invite each year. And thanks Grace, thanks for your beautiful work. I hope you continue to keep supporting NAM like you always do. Um, a few more shout outs for our sponsors Hames Paint and Bink Windows. Um, it's with their ongoing support that NAMS able to keep putting up really good events like this each year and also share great content with the local community. So, um, Hames Paint are a family-run business of four generations that started in Ballarat and they offer a really wide range of paints and finishes. So, if you're ever in need of any paint consultations and color specifications, please feel free to give them a call. They're really friendly people. Next, we have Bink Windows, NAM's newest sponsor, and Bink are manufacturing. Um, they're, they're an Australian com company that manufactures timber and aluminium framed windows from right here in Melbourne. And they happen to be a local favorite among a lot of award-winning practices. So if you ever need anything to do with windows, please give them a call as well. And regarding housekeeping, the public toilets are located at the corner of Linlithgow Avenue and St. Kilda Road. And a bit of an introduction about NAM because I'm pretty sure there's a lot of new NAMers in the audience and I can see a lot of new faces already. So we are New Architects Melbourne, a volunteer-based nonprofit group that started in April 2011. Um, it first started when a lot of practices who initially started their journey wanted to come together and have an informal backyard get-together. And ever since, we have been a larger platform to a lot of design professionals and allied creative professions to um, present in front of a larger audience and also share their design stories and sensibilities. With regards to this event, it's going to be a slightly different event because it's going to be a panel discussion and we have architects here who have done pro bono services for the vulnerable as well as people affected by natural disasters. And to give a brief introduction about our amazing speakers, we have Matt Goodman, 
who is the founder of Matt Goodman Architecture Office in Port Melbourne. Matt has intimate experience working with a community affected by bushfires as he started his office with three pro bono projects in the White River region in Victoria and it was affected by the Christmas um, bushfires in 2015. And this pro bono work has helped shape his ethos around his practice as well as a broader approach to architecture. Next we have Esther Charlesworth AM. Esther is the founder of Architects Without Frontiers, the director of Humanitarian Architecture Research Lab, and she also established the Master of Disaster Design and Development degree at RMIT. Esther has worked for over 20 years in designing and delivering social infrastructure projects for vulnerable communities globally. Next, we have Kim Irons, who is one of the directors of Stonehouse and Irons, a studio based out of Point Lonsdale. Kim has extensively worked with several people who had been affected by natural disasters. Following major bushfires in 2009 and 2020, Kim has offered pro bono services through Architects Assist, the CFA, as well as councils. Next, we have Alex Hopkins. Alex is one of the directors at Studio Tate from Richmond. Studio Tate is a practice that um, dedicates a certain percentage of their time towards working on pro bono projects. Alex and her team have worked with organizations such as Casa House, which is the Center Against Sexual Assault, as well as the Royal Women's Hospital Foundation. And um, they have extensive experience working along challenging briefs and budgets as well. So a round of applause for our amazing speakers. I can't wait to see what they have to offer for the discussion too. All right. And um, also to introduce our really good NAM team, which I forgot, we have me, Akila Ravi. Next, we have Kirsten Fokos, Dan Mo, Daria Laikina, William Tran, Amelia Wells, Rita Liao, Nikita Bopti, and Meryn Tierney, and... Um, Sorry if I missed out anyone. And Nick Arthur, thank you. So, um, to start our discussion, I'm really interested to hear from our speakers. Where, where did your journey start towards pro bono architecture and how did your practice um, methodology develop around pro bono practice as well? Um, could you start, Esther? Yeah, well, my journey was quite a long one. Um, I was doing my graduate study in the US in the mid-1990s. Um, I was looking to what was next. I had an internship at I.M. Pay's office in New York. I thought I was really on track. And then I sort of had a career U-turn, was offered um, a place through the Aga Khan program to get involved in a project in Mostar in Bosnia that was then at the end of the Balkan Wars. I thought, well, why not? And um, that was really a sort of existential crisis moment for me after having worked in the private and government sectors of architecture and urban design and I guess the confronting issues of war, peace and disaster and what can architecture, what does architecture have to do with it? So on the back of that and then working in the Middle East um, on and off in the UK for 10 years, uh, we started up Architects Without Frontiers a couple of decades ago with the mission of delivering design projects for vulnerable communities in the Asia-Pacific region. Oh, cool. Um, and could you also talk a little bit about how, while working globally, you've encountered a lot of different geographies, culture and procurement methods. 
Would you want to talk about that as well? Yeah, I mean, we only we only go where we're invited. So, for example, quite often when there's a a storm or a flood or a cyclone, people say, "Oh, why aren't you going working there?" But unless we're contacted with a, a proper brief, we are not fundraisers. We learned that very quickly 20 years ago. We don't fundraise for projects. Our skill is bringing together the right consortium of built environment professionals to get the project off the ground. Yes. Um, and so each project from a huge women's centre we've just finished for DFAD in Fiji um, was entirely run through local project management methods in Fiji, the same for a big disability daycare centre we did in Hoi An. Um, every project is different and at the moment we're doing a women's crisis centre in Preston, we've done a addiction centre in St Kilda. So each project, some don't come to fruition, um, some do, so every project is different. Thanks, Esther. Um, let's move on to Matt. Matt has an interesting story about how he procured his projects and being proactive. So I guess I kind of took the leap in a, in a kind of number of ways. When I started my first, or I started my office in 2016, kind of coinciding with me taking the leap from full-time paid employment to kind of try and build MGAO from nothing. I had no work or one or two small jobs and the bushfires came through Y River and I figured without work at least I have the drive to, to help or the skills to kind of re help people in the rebuild process. So I proactively, I guess you could say, thought 100 or 116 houses were lost in the fires and out of the 116 there was 12 houses that were owned by permanent residents of the town. So I figured people who live in these smaller towns are often not the same, um, don't have the same wealth as the people that kind of own the beach houses in these small towns. So I wanted to help those people get back on their feet. And I kind of put together a little, in, in hindsight, I was probably extremely underqualified to make the offer, but the kind of passion and the, the want to help was kind of there. So I put together a letter that I got to the pub and the general store and the CFA that they circulated to the 12 residents who lost their houses. And then three of them um, got back to me over the course of the past four years. And I kind of, the offer in the letter was to either help them rebuild their previous houses based off kind of uh, photos or previous plans or permits or to help them design a new house from scratch. And all three of them in um, kind of my luck chose to design new houses. So it was also a kind of learning curve for my office in how to work not only with new clients on tricky sites in bushfire affected areas. It's kind of a, a, a baptism by fire, no pun intended, that I was forced to help these people through the act of wanting to offer the help, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. Right. And I guess off the back of that, the... Um, all three of them, four, four years it took to actually, the, the most recent one was finished at the end of 2019. So it was like a, a long drawn out process, but it was actually a, a kind of nice way to actually help these people get back through the rebuild process. So a lot smaller scale than what Esther's experience is, but it was still quite um, enjoyable and difficult at the same time. 
Um, would you want to talk about your first client meeting and our first site visit? Oh, the first site visit, or the first uh, couple that got back to me were a family who actually were in the CFA that fought a lot of the fires or fought for two weeks to put the fires out. And it was quite a shocking meeting. I put the offer out. It's kind of all through um, mail and the internet. And then to meet this family who'd lost everything on the site that was still kind of totally destroyed. I think Grocon was getting rid of all the debris that all the trees were cutting. Like it was an absolute disaster zone. And it was something that I wasn't prepared for because three weeks prior it was this beautiful bushland that we were actually kind of holidaying in. So it was one of those things that the first meeting while I was there prepared as best I could be, I wasn't prepared for how kind of devastating the fires were and how devastated the clients also were. So it wasn't a great meeting, but I was glad that I was able to kind of help that family get through the process eventually. Oh, that's impressive, Matt. Um, moving on to Kim. Kim, you've had a lot of experience for over 20 years working on a lot of natural disasters projects and pro bono projects. Would you want to talk about your experience as well? Um, and in the same way, how did I get into it? Yes. Yeah, okay. So I did, I, I have actually dipped my toe in a number of times. So I did some work for the REACH Foundation. I've done overseas volunteer programs, etc. But I was, uh, I suppose with bushfire recovery particularly, um, I was in the CFA. Mm. So in 2009, I was up at Kingsville, King Lake west and um and talking to some of the members and so i did actually see it and and felt kind of actually i didn't feel prepared I, I felt prepared but i wasn't prepared um for a lot of the smell um and 2009 was a very different experience i think in that respect but um so i was in touch with the cfa members there and then um the big thing that i found was um once i went up and said, you know, I'd been there so they knew that this was someone in the CFA, so it was someone familiar that they felt they could ask. Um, and then, I, you know, I went up a few times and actually just spent time in those areas. And the more time you spent there, the more people came in. And the Flowerdale pub, I went there for one meeting and left at 7, having arrived there at 10 in the morning. I left there at 7, having met about six couples Um and I think that was a really important part about it all was that I was actually physically there. And for for me, a lot of it was, here's the process, this is what you may need to go through. And the trauma was quite extraordinary. So there was only um, one or two projects that came out of that and they were very much, unlike Matt, wanting to rebuild what they had. Um, so in some respects, we sort of stepped back from doing design and just helped them navigate the system. Yes. Um, and then 2020, is that the most recent one? Um, 2020, um, we got on board with Architects Assist. But I also put out an email to everyone because I remember last time... Oh, sorry, the Institute of Architects also put me in touch with someone. So they were really key to actually getting something started. And then Architects Assist just started and he felt overwhelmed. So then that became part of the Institute of Architects as well. Um, and I think that was a really good system to actually have everybody register their interest because one of the things I also did was put out a message and said, look, everyone will really want to help straight away, but there's so much to happen before then. Um, so we got a group of people together 
um, and some volunteers. And can I just name them because I just feel they were... Yes. Uh, sorry, there's 12 names. Um, but I just feel like I've never thanked them and they were a group of graduates and students. So as Diana Constanza Veron Marin, I promise that's the longest name there, Hannah Toe, Isabel Peppard-Clark, Jesse Ohm, Jacob Lamb, Kimberly Hugh, Marcelo Rodriguez, Megan Murray, Michael Whittingham, me, Lynn, Nicole Weish, William McKenzie and Charles Drummond. So I just really want to thank them because it made a big difference in 2020. Um, and I can expand as to all the work that we had to do at that time. But yeah, I guess it was really through the CFA and then the Institute of Architects was really helpful in, in getting Architects Assist kind of established and, and starting to connect people to architects, which I think was a really important thing. Um, and you also mentioned during one of our discussions that you had a really long meeting at the pub that lasted at least a couple of hours. Do you want to talk about that? Well, that was 10 till 7. <laughs> And there's a really funny story about the fact that I'd actually cut my head with a surfboard that morning and not realised. But, um, sorry, it was probably 10 till 6 because I remember what time I started realising my head was cut. Um, it was just, I, th I think it was a really important thing about being there. And I should say at the same time, 2009, Whittlesey um, Local Authority also had an information day. And I thought that was a really important thing to do because, again, it was about being there so people could approach you. Australians culturally don't have a habit of ringing up and asking for help. Um, and that's a very hard thing to do, to ring up and cold call. So when you're there, it actually helps. So the episode in the pub was, I think, very much about meeting this couple. He was the um, captain of the CFA, so I talked it through with he and his wife. Um, I should say 2009 was a very different experience. You know, there'd been a lot of death and... Um, you know, you could see it in eyes and faces. It was actually really, it was quite traumatic to be there um, and overwhelming. And I hadn't been there on the day and I didn't know the people, but I knew the people I was talking to. So we were in the Flowerdale pub and I'm just sitting in the lounge room and everyone's in the bar because that became the community centre of Flowerdale um, because there was nothing else. Um, to the point that I actually spoke to the owners of the pub as well because they'd lost their house, they hadn't lost the pub. Um, but all of them just kept coming in saying, are you the architect? Can I talk to you afterwards? And I said, yeah, sure, that's fine. Great. Yep, that's sure. That's fine. Yep. <laughs> and it just kept going all day. Interestingly, um, particularly in that time, and the Flowerdale pub people were a really interesting example, they had become the centre emotionally for everyone and you could see it draining on them even sort of four months after the event. They decided to leave the area. Mm. And that wasn't uncommon for us in 2009. A lot of people started the process um, and then just walked away. Some people needed time before they could think about it. Some people had to stop for a while and then come back to it. Um, and so that was really interesting. But, um, yeah, the, I think it was just about being at the pub, being there and someone to ask. Of course. Thanks mm. for sharing that, Kim. Um, moving on to Alex, because she has a lot of experience working on community projects um, and you're also dealing with a lot of trauma, of course, because it involves sexual abuse. Um, how, is, how do you treat this project any differently compared to your paid work? And how did your practice start getting involved with pro bono projects? 
Thank you. Um, can everyone hear me? Yeah. <laughs> um, we, just to clarify, don't, we, we're not architects, so we're a group of interior architects and designers. So all of the pro bono projects that we have done to date are obviously fit out refurbishment projects rather than new builds. Um, and I think, yeah, so just to touch on the first, well, your last question, I'll start with how did we get into this space? So um, Carly, my business partner who's in the crowd today, and I started our studio about eight years ago. Um, and Carly's background is actually not in design. Carly has a sort of strategy business background and worked a lot in the not-for-profit um, and social space. And I had previously had the uh, fortunate experience for working for a lot of wonderful private um, design and architecture studios here in Melbourne. Um, so we bring very different skills, obviously, to running our studio. Um, but Carly's background, I think, has been extremely influential as to how we have um, ended up doing quite a lot of pro bono work. Um, and I think also my own personal experience, I hadn't actually done any pro bono work at the three main places, or four, rather, that I'd worked at before we formed Studio Tate. And I think um, our first pro bono project came to us through uh, a friend's mother, actually. Um, uh, Jean Howes is a women's health um, provider and they needed some help with their head office. It was a very simple task, but they didn't have any money to be able to pay a designer, um, but they knew us. So we um, uh, went out to their space. Um, Jean Howes was... Uh, my friend's grandmother actually uh, and one of the first female health clinics that was ever set up in Victoria. And the reason she'd picked the Clayton location was because it was on the train line and it serviced uh, the Gippsland area very well. So um, Jean was a very, um, you know, forward-thinking woman back then um, and her daughter, Janet, who approached us, needed some help. So um, we offered our first, that was our first pro bono project and um, I think from my own personal experience, having had such fabulous exposure at private practices, um, but without having the opportunity to do pro bono work, I think this, for me, was a great way to provide, or to, to participate in design, but really to provide something a bit more meaningful. Um, and from there, we, um, can, we were approached through project managers, actually. Um, that's how we've mainly got most of our pro bono work, if I think about it. Um, and as um, Akila mentioned, one of our key, or two of our key projects, one for Casa House and one for um, the uh, Royal Women's Hospital. So they've been two key projects for us that we've been able to provide interior design services for. Um, the Casa House one was interesting because you do, um, you're obviously dealing with a very sensitive um, clientele there and, and the people who work there are obviously under immense pressure. You know, that's uh, who you go to if you have uh, been a victim of sexual assault. So you can imagine the staff are under a lot of pressure, um, not just psychological pressure with their job, but also time. I remember one of the girls explaining that her job is it's not just nine till five. If something happens on a weekend, then she's called and she's in at the hospital consulting with that um, that that victim. So um, the the work, the, the space that they were in was, was subpar. Um, they didn't have a big budget, but we were able to offer um, design services. So at least uh, the work that they did do was considered in terms of the fit out. Um, often many of these organisations are located in, um, you know, the worst building or the worst part of the building, no natural light, they have no 
no money to be able to do fit out. So to be able to consult with a professional is um, of huge benefit. Um, uh, what, what, was, what was your other question? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I think I forgot myself. But you could elaborate a bit about your meetings with Casa House. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was a very consultative process. We obviously needed to take time to understand how they interact with the clients who are coming into the space. Um, you know, one of the examples that we were given, you know, we had to think about how the trades were going to go into the space and replace the, fit, or, you know, upgrade the environment. And typically the clients are female, usually, and they've obviously suffered um, typically abuse from a male, generally. Um, so you can, and, and, you know, often the trades are men. So, you know, all of that was a very sensitive issue. You know, how do the um, trades come in during business hours and you've got clients who are there and they're anxious about being around a male group of people. So all of that was quite tricky. So you end up playing a role, I suppose, of designer. You take a brief and you have to come up with a design solution, but then you're also having to think about how can you implement it in a way that is safe and considered so that they can keep operating in the space as well. So it had a bit of complexity around it, um, but we do a range of paid work in our studio from residential through to commercial. So we're used to, you know, we're well versed in dealing with, um, you know, kind of complex um, client groups, if you like. Um, so dealing with that, I guess, was, I, I suppose, just an extension yeah. of dealing with our commercial clients, obviously being a bit more mindful of, of the, um, the sort of psychological considerations in that. But a lot of our workplace projects are typically for businesses in the social sector. So our team are quite well versed at being able to approach it in a calm, considered, intelligent way. Um, and our design responses, I suppose, uh, need to take into consideration that as well. So, you know, you, you think about what you might suggest in terms of um, finishes, selections, colours, comfort of furniture, etc. All of that comes into play. And usually with a very tight budget or no money at all. So you've got to be creative. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, that gives a point about how... Um, sorry... <laughs> Um, that, that gives an amazing point about how you were already pretty trained in a lot of social projects that you were able to translate into pro bono projects. Um, what about all of you over here? Were you trained to work with natural disasters? Did you have any experience working on them? Absolutely not. I mean, I'm probably 20, 30 years older than I think a lot of people here. Um, but... Uh, I had absolutely no training. Um, even though I went to one of the top universities in America, I had no training in research skills. I didn't even really know what a brief was. Um, and in terms of thinking about sustainability, disaster resilience, mitigation, all of these words now that are hopefully seeped somewhere into um, design courses, no, I was completely ill-equipped. Um, to work in this sector and I think there is a naivety that you can work in the sector. We often get approached with Architects Without Frontiers um, with recent graduates. Can we work on a project? No. Um, we have 12 network partners who do these projects. In our scale of work, really you're of use if you can bring 10 to 15 years experience with you 
Um, you're really good at project managing. You're really good at governance and administration, um, at handling tricky architects and tricky clients. But I would say um, for the first 15 years of my architecture career, completely ill-equipped to know what to do mm. in crisis situations, sadly. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, um, sorry, um, Matt, do you want to move on to the next? Um, do you want to answer this? And I can probably formulate my question first in the time being. Yeah. Um, what was the question again? Were you well-equipped? No, no, not at all. Like, all I was trained to do was what I, I imagine most of the people here, if you're architects or studying architecture, I did the same course. I worked for the two years before I got registered and the day I got registered, I pretty much started my own office and I, I knew how to draw. I knew how to get a town planning application done and I knew people wanted or needed some help. So I threw my hand up and kind of got in there. I had no idea about a septic system, effluent, landslip, bell ratings. I didn't know 3959, the, the Australian standard. I had no skills whatsoever that I like had to... Um, this is all off the record. <laughs> but learning the hard way and learning fast and like the, the fact that there are kind of um, Australian standards and building surveyors that are there to like make sure that things don't slip through the cracks and now like in, in uh, kind of hindsight, the skills that I have were through or kind of learned through that process. Had I not gone through that process, I'd probably still be drawing the same kind of things that I would have been had I stayed at kind of paid work. So definitely not trained with the skills and learned them the hard way. It's an, it's, I think it's an interesting point, and Essie, you were saying that before when I was asking you about the partners. Um, uh, we, yes, we do work in the social sector and, and our team have done workplace projects. We are about to embark on our biggest pro bono project this year, which... Now I'm testing my memory on on the scale of it. It is it is purely a fit out project, um, and I think it would be about a thousand square meters. I'm looking at Carly, nodding, yeah. Um, and in my overly zealous sort of um, way, wanted the whole studio to participate, and ultimately we will make that happen. But you know, it was the calm head of of Carly and Anita who lead our lead, Anita leads our workplace projects, who sort of said, "Well, yes, that's great, Alex, but." Ultimately, we need to treat this like any other project and there must be someone in the studio who is held accountable to deliver it and make sure that it sits with a safe pair of hands and that the client is looked after like any other client. And I think that, um, you know, we haven't necessarily had formal training in this space. It's, it, this project will be um, for an for a organisation who does some pretty important... Who, who are doing, rather, some very important work in Melbourne and in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, um, their clients are very disadvantaged um, people and, um, you know, to, we, you need to make sure, obviously, that you treat it, you know, like any project. And so, you know, I think that's where we do have... We've, we've put a senior team on it and they are the ones who will be responsible for delivering it. So to, to your point, <laughs> yeah, you don't get formal training, but you've got to have... Um, the right head on it, on the project, to make sure that it's delivered like any other job. Just because it's a pro bono project doesn't mean it's easier or it's often more complex. 
Yeah, of course. Can I just butt in here before yeah. Kim? I mean, I, my day job is um, as a professor of architecture at RMIT and I've got a reasonable take on what is happening at other design schools around Australia and in Asia-Pacific and in Europe because we work with them. People are not training people right now. I mean, it was excusable when I did my degree 30 years ago. Um, will it change in the next year? Will someone throw in a disaster mitigation course, mm -hmm. a nature-based solutions for disaster risk reduction, um, a course on, you know, bowel approvals? Because um, I look a lot at architectural and design education and particularly in, in Australia and in America, even in America, except for examples like Rural Studio um, and a few others, the education sector just hasn't shifted mm. at all, um, which to me is fundamentally a problem. Yeah. Um, and when I sort of came back from disaster zones, people used to say to me 20 years ago, well, can you, when are you going to get a real job, Esther? You know, this disaster stuff. You know, nobody says that now. Um, but it, it, it's a deep concern to me that um, how we are training the next generation and equipping people with the necessary skills yeah. that is design plus, design plus project management, design mm. plus costing, um, because it's not happening in, in most schools of architecture across Australia from mm. what I say. And I could be wrong, and if so, please let me know. Um, and moving on to Kim. Well, I'm not going to contradict Esther, um, <laughs> but I am. No. Um, I mean, I think Matt raises an interesting thing for me in that um, in a technical sense, you weren't prepared. I was, but I was older. Um, <laughs> um, and I'd done a lot of regional work as well, so I knew. But, um, but you do often learn from one project to the next project to the next project. But I think the interesting thing about architecture and, and design training is the critical design thinking that you're actually taught. And also that idea of you know where to look for the technical. Um, and, you know, I know I've said it a few times in other forums, but I think the really important thing from where I sat anyway for me was it's about listening. Mm -hmm. And as architects and designers, we're very problem solved. Let's go in with the piece of paper. And as I said in Flowerdale, I wasn't drawing anything. I wasn't sketching or saying you could move this here and oh let's do this. I was just listening and I was listening to the pauses as well mm. which when people are in trauma um, or you know have had an traumatic event you actually have to give them space to speak and really stop you know don't feel and and I'm terrible for it I know I can't stand silence um, <laughs> and I'm inclined to feel it but you do actually need to listen. And I think for me that was the greatest skill because sometimes you're hearing they don't actually need to build or they're not ready. Mm. They just need to talk. And I think you make a very valid point about how architecture school teaches you how to draw, teaches you how to critically think. But when it comes to dealing with trauma, you need to know how to interact with people and learn more public relations as well. And is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, I suppose. I, I don't know if it's something you can teach in a school without yeah. doing psychology yeah, or something yeah. like that. Um, I think it just comes from, I suppose, being sensitive enough to realise the, the space that you're in and to just stop and, and just 
you know, and, and, and even when I was in government, we would laugh at architects going, for God's sake, could you just listen? Like, stop drawing and solving the problem. You need to hear the stakeholders first, you know. So it is something, I think, for us to be very mindful of in that space. But I think also we need to take the focus just off architects. I know that we're architects here. Mm. But um, some of the most... Our 12 corporate partners involve probably five of the best-known firms from Melbourne, SJB, um, Hassel, Habel, JCB... Um, our most useful partner is WT Partnership, the largest quantity surveying mm. firm in the Asia-Pacific region, and Tract. So I think it's about how do you bring together the right set of individuals. Now, quite often, there will be trauma specialists working in those areas. There will be legal specialists if you're working overseas with land tenure issues. As we know, five million Ukrainians are now fleeing into the borders. Um, we can't pretend we are kind of everything. We're not trained as yeah. social workers, but I totally agree with Kim that you do have to sit back and listen, but also to bring in the necessary logistic counselling support as it is needed, and that mm -hmm. tends to happen, what happens in the international development system. We're not everything, and let's not pretend to be that, but I think it's more... We always need a landscape architect. Um, we have a services engineer. We do a lot of work in the Northern Territory. There are, you know, if we don't bring them in, then the project is twice as expensive. Yeah. So to me, it's that bigger interest of sort of transdisciplinary skills that are needed, I think, for small and for larger projects. And I, again, were we trained with that mindset in our undergraduate degrees? I, I wasn't. And I think it's maybe slightly better now. Mm. And um, moving on to questions about practice and resourcing. And since you've also dealt with a lot of network partners, um, how do you think, from a risk management perspective, they were able to manage paid and non-paid workloads? Yeah, um, good question. So, we're Architects Without Frontiers have been going for over two decades. Yeah. Um, I quickly learnt that having volunteers deliver complex projects, it took me 10 years to work out that that was quite often a disaster. And I'll give an example. Very well-known Sydney architect um, did some huge design of some huge hospitals for us in Papua New Guinea. Her own firm went under. The hospitals got built. But that's not a successful story. Yeah. Um, we don't employ volunteers. We have a financial structure that enables us to bring in the expertise that we need because my experience in the volunteer world is that there's all this enthusiasm at the start, but then there's this steep curve, sorry, um, another job came in the door. At the same time, it's not work that should be done after hours. Um, I think Studio Tate have talked about this has to be factored in to the company structure. So some of you might know of the Mass Design Group, um, MAWS, they've just won the top award for top architecture firm in the US. Their practice is set on four quadrants. Um, th they do regular design projects, they do pro bono projects, um, they do research and advocacy. So in their business plan, it's very, very clear what they do. Because the saddest thing is, and I've seen this so often, um, People have come out of a disaster, whether that's a war, a flood, a fire, 
um, social violence, an architect, a designer comes on board and then the project gets dropped because they don't have the time. So then you add another level of disaster, which is the design disaster, which people don't really talk about. And particularly where I've worked in um, Sri Lanka and Haiti, and it, it, it's sort of just an ethical conundrum. So it's, it, it, it's a great question, but it's, um, as I said, uh, if we employ um, a full-time project coordinator, we're looking for one right now, if anyone, <laughs> we're desperate for one right now, actually. Um, but What's the salary? <laughs> well, I've just been told by my colleague at Studio Tate, it's quite a regular salary, I was just checking. But the problem is we need somebody with 20 years probably plus um, design schools, project management schools, skills in the not-for-profit sector, skills in governance, writing board minutes. There aren't many people who actually mm. know about that. So... Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's really hard and I think, um, you know, all of the practices here I think have demonstrated innovative models of absorbing their work while they're doing other work because the last thing you want to happen is what happened to my colleague in Sydney who now is with a huge corporate where her own firm went into liquidation. Like, that's very sad. Yes, there were great projects built in PNG but she just couldn't manage it. Mm -hmm. And I think, as you've said as well, um, these projects, uh, a library in Geelong de demands the same le level of time and expertise as a flood mitigation project. Mm. Um, it's not an experiment. You need the technical expertise. It needs to be done in a very timely manner. And um, hopefully it has a design that sort of uplifts and, you know, deals with that scenario. Mm. Mm. We, the project that we will be focused on this year, that client, um, and sorry, I can't, just with the government funding, we can't say who it is right now, but um, they even said, oh, you know, we are hesitant to do everything on a pro bono basis because they've had that experience before and, to your point, Esther, have been let down because something else comes in and they're paying, they're, it's a paying client or whatever it might be. Um, you know, Carly and I made a decision that no, we were doing this as pro bono, um, but it, this is the one this year that we will do. We, we're not going to be doing multiple because mm -hmm. from a business um, proposition point of view, we, we just can't, it's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, and we have started in this space, we started small. You know, the, the projects that I mentioned earlier, they were just quite basic, you know, finishes and furniture because those were the opportunities that we were presented with, but also from a business point of view, that's really what we could do at the time because you don't want the example from Sydney to happen because, as you say, that's a disaster for the client as well as, you know, your own studio. Um, so I think that it has to be... You have to go in eyes wide open um, and be responsible with, with what the offer is and reasonable. But, um, yeah, I think all of the... These organisations are typically very grateful. So, I mean, you know, as I said before, our workplace projects, we've done work with Burnett Institute, our community house, they're two key projects where that, those, those were paid projects, but we did do them at a lower paid rate. So rather than a commercial rate, it was a bit lower. Um, they were great opportunities for us because they were circa 
you know, 2,000 square metres each. So for us, when, as building a business, to get that opportunity, it was a privilege to work with those organisations. In addition, um, we were doing something meaningful and the team really, you know, loved that too. So there's a balance. You can do some that's completely pro bono or at a lower rate or whatever it might be. And you've got to make that decision from a business point of view based on where you're at as an organisation and what, what, you can, what you feel you can deliver in a sustainable way. And in contrast to what Alex and Esther were talking, Matt, you handled three pro bono projects yes. at yeah, that's, the same that's time. extreme. <laughs> How did you do it? It was, it was difficult, to say the least. And I, I think the fact that I... Well, the one thing that I knew when I started them was that a pro bono job is exactly the same as a paid job, except you're not paid. So you can be sued by the client if you stuff up and if you m miss something in the documentation, there's variations, you're still kind of, you're, you're on the hook, so to speak. So with the three of them, kind of just reiterating my kind of lack of experience at the time or knowledge more so in the area, I, the most recent house that we finished, I had to re-document two, three different times to actually get it on budget because again, you signed up, there's a budget, it has to be built for the budget. If you go over budget, it's the architect's fault, so you've got to do what you've got to do to get it back online. <laughs> it felt like it was at the time. So very difficult finding a builder in a kind of regional area too. It was difficult but also rewarding in that it was the pro bono work is kind of the experience that I got and to be able to help somebody and the experience that I got through that help, I couldn't have bought with the fees that I would have been paid if they were paid jobs. So it was, mm. I was paid in other ways outside of money, which was kind of beneficial or easy enough for me to wear because I was a solo architect working from home. Whereas if I had a larger firm and was kind of feeding a lot of mouths with the fees, it would be it would have possibly been a lot harder. So pro bono work probably fits or suits a smaller scale setup than it does like a larger institution, I'd imagine. And did you have any consultants and builders also? No, nobody, nobody wanted to help, only me. <laughs> I put my hand up and everybody else shook their heads as to why. It was, it was nice to get, um, nobody else dropped their fees, but what can you do? It wasn't about that. It was about me offering my help to help those uh, few families get through the process. They, they still paid full price for the, the build and the consultants, but I think it was beneficial for me to help them through what is a fairly difficult process. Like the planning process is difficult enough as it is. So the planning process through the bushfire rebuild was um, yeah, probably the biggest help. And um, Kim, you also mentioned a lot about how you structure pro bono practices. Could you mention a bit about that? I was going to say, I think I'm the most guilty of what Esther said. Oh. Um, it was much easier when it was just one person in charge of the practice. Now it's yep. a shared partnership. I just sort of do my own thing on the side and still make my billable hours. <laughs> like sound like a lawyer. Um, I mean, that was where in 2020 the team of graduates and students coming on board was really helpful. And and just to Matt's point, I mean, you know, and this is something that I, I am going to take up with the state government because, um, you know, <laughs> I do actually know someone who knows someone. Um, 
it, we struggled with consultants and that's where the team of um, the team who were supporting were really helpful and we had Charlie who's a project manager friend um, because the consultant and, and this is what frustrated me about government was they were doing things like the Grocon's clearing the site yeah great so let me list for you what we need. We need a bushfire attack level assessment. We need an LCA. We need a site survey. We need a geotech. You know, these are the minimum things you're going to need. And it was, uh, you know, and, and the other criticism I have of state government about not knowing those things is also um, this idea of suddenly setting up a recovery agency for the number of them that occur and, you know, one minute we finally got on to somebody and they'd go on, they were seconded from another department, weren't they, Kimberly? And so it was like, then they'd gone. Okay, who do we go to now? You know, it was just this... Um, but we did get on to engineers without frontiers and they've been really helpful. And I think Architects Assist are starting... If you look at the resources, you're starting to see more resources on that. Mm -hmm. But Esther's point's really, you know, it is really important to get all of those people... On board and understand that it isn't going to be just us. It's going to be a whole lot of other people that need to be yeah. engaged in the process. And what about budget issues? How did you navigate that with your client? And did the builder also have any lesser profit margins and stuff? Um, I've never seen the ins and outs of the builder's prices. Um, I, I did see one, sorry, and I thought, wow, that's that's pretty competitive. So they were they were doing really well in bringing it in. Um, we were talking about that before. The escalation in prices at the moment in the industry is only going to really foul things up mm. even more. Um, but um, budget was always a challenge, and you know, I remember these people saying the insurance company had they'd had two quotes from builders just to rebuild what they had six hundred thousand dollars. They were insured for four hundred thousand dollars, and the insurance company said, good luck handed them a cheque and said, good luck. Um, so, yeah, budgets are an issue and having to have that hard conversation about that of saying, look, let's pull all this out. And sometimes through the process, people get extraordinarily excited about it and they sort yeah. of want everything and you go, well, I don't yeah. think that's going to happen. Mm. Mm. But, um, look, we just keep messaging and messaging and um, at the moment we're dealing with people who are saying they've got a huge amount of volunteer labour. Mm. So hopefully they do, mm. yeah. Mm. And Esther, as someone who's dealt with a lot of stakeholders, how do you navigate through funding issues? How, sorry? how do you navigate through funding issues because you've dealt with a lot of stakeholders? Well, I think I mentioned earlier, uh, we don't fundraise for projects. We did um, about 15 years ago. We got involved particularly in Sydney with some large Sydney architects who had big fundraisers. Mm. And um, now we really only do projects that have got a good chance of funding. Mm. And as I said before, that the organisation for whom we're doing that for, whether it's a women's crisis centre in Preston or a small um, women's collaborative in Kabul that have sound governance structures, because without that, you've done the design, the organisation falls away, it's sort of endemic in remote Indigenous communities, doing projects there and then the person leaves to the next remote community. Um, and so, so yeah. Oh, okay. And Matt, how did you work through funding issues? Did the project pace also depend on the funding too? Oh, funding issues. The I was lucky enough, or the clients were lucky enough that they actually had their houses insured for what they were worth or there was enough money there to actually rebuild a 
fairly modest house. So even though with the cost increases with the, um, like a lot of these houses that were lost were not built to the belt requirements mm -hmm. that um, you've got to meet this day and age. So kind of from a design approach, keeping the, um, the design decisions fairly kind of rational to make sure that we were able to build something on budget was probably the key to getting the projects built. But yeah. I think um, the main key is insure your house for what it's worth to rebuild, not um, mm. under that. And, um, oh, sorry. sorry, I was going to say my mum and I had that conversation um, once where she said, your house isn't worth that much. And I said, yeah, but try rebuilding it. Um, I was going to say also that um, I just wanted to say Matt's designs are really good and they're very Thank resilient. You. And um, but the the approach to them, and I think this is the interesting thing, is that often, you know, people just want to rebuild what they have. And so, of course, which is, you know, totally understandable. But um, but then you're dealing with a piece of architecture that you're then layering to deal with all of these, whether it's flood mitigation or bushfire mitigation or what have you. Um, I think that capacity to um, bring the clients along on the idea that we're, and I know some of the stories that, and Matt told me about fibre cement sheet shacks and that was the sort of basis of it, but still to bring people along with that story that you're going to have to design this in a different way. We can't rebuild exactly the same. It's a, that's a particular skill to actually bring people along with that story and Matt's done an excellent job with those three projects. And Alex, have you worked with suppliers to alleviate the funding issues? Yes. Um, so, yes, Interestingly, the project that we'll be getting uh, built this year, um, we introduced the one of our collaborators that we work with a lot, uh, Capabuild, a, a builder who do a lot of our fit-out work. They have come to the party and are actually contributing and doing the build at a lower rate. I don't know the ins and outs of how that's structured per se, but they are definitely making a commitment to the project. So that's really exciting. Um, the, the way that we were introduced to, to this particular project is through a, a business um, consulting group that we do some work with and um, they are also, they provide um, a contribution to this organisation as well. So the three of us are probably the kind of key consultants and we're obviously all providing our services. Well, we're completely pro bono, but the others are providing their um, services at a reduced rate. And part of what we will do, and, and this is how we plan to get our studio more broadly to engage in the project is to ideally have a bit of a, a, a committee internally at Studio Tate that will ultimately be responsible for rallying with suppliers to see, you know, what end of run finishes might be available from, you know, I don't know, carpet tiles or timber flooring or whatever it might be. We plan to put the pressure on and we specify all these fabulous products and these suppliers get them into these wonderful projects that get photographed and published and what have you. So we do plan to um, put the pressure on the suppliers to, to really help um, come along on the journey with us and our team are very good negotiators. So they'll be <laughs> on the phone selling the dream. Um, and we have done that on the previous projects as well. So um, that's, I suppose, part of how we will We'll manage that. Um, and with this particular project, they have some government funding and then at a board level, there's a commitment to match that, but they will need to do some additional fundraising. Um, we're not part of that process per se, but can I make a plug for an event next Thursday as part of NGV's <laughs> Melbourne Design Week? We are hosting an event which will 
sort of, I suppose, it's with this client who I can't mention. But if anyone wants to come along, tickets are 50 bucks. Go to NGV's <laughs> Melbourne Design Week. All proceeds are going to the project. So come along. <laughs> um, and as... as Um, and what lessons have you learned from working on pro bono projects and how do you encourage people to start taking, how do you encourage people to start taking up more projects? Um, I guess, uh, my, oh, sorry, yeah. I mean, I guess because um, it's just what I've done for the last 20 years, it's, um, I've learned that when people have nothing, as I've experienced living in Bosnia and Beirut and being in other zones like um, Belfast and Nicosia, that the social capital of those communities is extraordinary, particularly living in Beirut for three years. City destroyed after 30 years civil war. Obviously, it's been destroyed again the last two years. And human capital, the strength of that when people have nothing is simply mind-blowing. Somehow, stupidly, I thought when I was in Mostar that everybody would be thrashing around and weeping, and but it was totally... So that resilience um, and strength and knowledge about how people want to rebuild and where um, always is sort of striking. I guess the other thing is with the 12 network partners we have... Um, of these large firms like SJB, Hassel, Hayball, we don't have to tell them anything about community consultation. They're good projects. They do it the whole time. They're doing it in their big corporate firms. Um, and why they're interested in sponsoring our organisation is because unlike my generation, the generation of pe perhaps people in the audience, want something to change. There is an activist element that simply was not there when I was studying. If there had been, I would have been part of it. So I guess um, it's... But also just that you... It's, it's, you know, it's a professional business. The projects have to come in on time, on budget. They're complex. And recruit the best skills that you can from a multidisciplinary crew and don't expect that architecture will solve the world. Mm. And what about you, Matt? I guess from my... my, um, my or, uh, This is the kind of the advice part, isn't it? So I, I guess the way that I saw it, I was passionate. I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to have my own office. I, I was a registered architect, but I had no work, no contacts, and not much work on the horizon. So you've got to make the work happen. So offering help, pro bono work is work, even though it's not paid. My focus isn't on making money. It's on getting jobs, doing a good design, and hopefully building a body of work that sees me through until I die the kind of offer to help. You've got to be passionate in the first instance to kind of reach out or people will see through it from the outset and you've got to be kind of, uh, I guess, uh, can't think of the word, but you've got to be honest in the way that you actually want to help purely to actually help these people get through. There can't be kind of um, secondary 
kickbacks, I guess you could say. Like the, the, the payoff in the long run, I guess you could say, was karma that came back that through word of mouth I've got paid work from these jobs and mm. I've got experience in these really complex, difficult places to build off the back of this pro bono work. So if anyone out there has come along to think, I wonder how Matt did it and could I do it? Like there's a lot of bad stuff happening in the world at the moment and a lot of people that need help. So throw an email out or mm. do a town planning application and help someone get back into their house at the, at the Definitely. moment. You can do it. If I did it, go for it. Definitely. Um, what about you, Kim? What lessons have you learned from doing pro bono work? Um, I think I probably just learned to listen, like, mm. which is a big lesson for me. Um, uh, lessons, lessons. I, I think it is about listening. I think it was also about um, letting people go sometimes. So like we've mm. got to, they're still clients, but they've had to go off and deal with some other issues right now. So they're not ready. Mm. Um, so I think it was about being able to let go. But I think also the lesson I've learned is you do need to be committed, as mm. Esther said. You can't drop it. Yeah. Um, and so in a sense you still need to be there when they call you at two years later sort of mm. thing. Um, and I think the other lesson is pace yourself and ask for help mm. as well. Definitely. You know, don't, don't overcommit. Um, yeah. Thank you, Kim. And you, Alex. I think uh, the listening and being committed is two really good... Listening and committing is <laughs> two really good words. Um, also, I think um, you need to be flexible. You know, you can't have designer head in ass syndrome, you know. <laughs> the project may not aesthetically be what you want, uh, but what hopefully you are aiming or striving to do is to get the right outcome for the the person or the group that you're helping. Um, so, you know, there are paid projects which look beautiful when they get photographed, but these projects, of course, you want it to look fabulous, but it needs to function and it needs to be delivered on budget uh, and it needs to fulfil the brief. So, um, you know, you just, you need to roll your sleeves up and get it done. And um, so I think being a bit flexible and adaptable. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I think now we'll start taking questions from the audience. So if anyone has any burning questions, please step up to the mic over there. Um, does anyone have a question? Hi, thanks. That was really informative. Um, I have a question. Obviously, everyone's looking to the Upper East Coast and you know, seeing what's happening there. Um, it's in increasingly becoming obvious that uh, we need more proactive rather than reactive building and architecture with, re you know, with regards to disasters that are happening with increasing frequency with climate change. What, do you, what role do you see uh, architectural organisations that do pro bono work and work with the disadvantaged because they're disproportionately affected by these floods? What, what role do you see uh, your organisations working with the government in, in getting some kind of um, standardisation with regards to rebuilds that are uh, more effective at withstanding, say, flooding and the disasters that we are going to be facing in the future? Thanks. I, I think the biggest issue which has come to the fore in the last couple of weeks through the tragic um, northern part of Australia is that... Um, 
90% of all government funds go into rebuilding and none go into mitigation projects. And yet they say in international development circles, for every dollar you spend on disaster mitigation, you get $8 back. So there's this kind of... Um, it just seems that we don't learn from our disasters. The Royal Commission came down on the Black Saturday fires. They said all sorts of things. People shouldn't be living in these locations, X, Y and Z. Were any of those recommendations put into force? No. Secondly, these Shane Stone, who's running the National Recovery and Resilience Agency, I listen continuously to these people on ABC. You know, why hasn't the money been spent? And um, there are good reasons, but again, it's just that we know three quarters of our coast are, are built on um, precarious zones. We know that. The Sydney coast, they keep on building on the foreshore. Um, our property, our taxation system is all kind of into this. So it's a really kind of complicated argument, but I think other countries particularly the Netherlands um, with their sort of, you know, the, their system of water dikes and other things. I mean, I texted a friend in Mullumbimby last week, last Monday, just sort of joking, saying, are you afloat? And she said, well, we've just broken down the windows of the local primary school and we're all sleeping on the second floor. And Mullumbimby is just kind of gone. Um, it was no longer a joke. And so it's just that kind of thing. People know these issues. The um, emergency um, warning systems have got better, but it is this systemic issue with our culture and taxation system where we put everything into property and then with greed and everything else. So when you look at the climate change mapping for most areas of coastal Australia, even in Elwood near where I live, you know, it's, it's, it's a nightmare. Um, and yet in these recovery agencies, of which um, I've contacted many, have I met somebody from the built environment? No. They are run generally from the military, Peter Cosgrove, Black Saturday fires. Um, after the Black Saturday fires, the same thing. You bring in an ex-poly, that's what Shane Stone is. He's the ex-head um, of the NT government. And they give us all this sort of gobbledygook about all of this stuff. But the projects that matter now, as much as it is, is to rebuild, are the mitigation projects. And um, we're not trained as a group to sort of think that we can partake in these big discussions. Why aren't architects paid when engineers are? The lawyers are paid who are brought in to do these projects and the design people aren't paid because design is just generally seen for the general public as a grand design. So I think, sorry, I'm rambling on mm -hmm. because I keep on listening to the news, listening to the same things. Mm -hmm. um, we need a, say, a seat at these tables mm -hmm. because... After each disaster, I see exactly the same organisation happening again. Kevin Rudd flies over Marysville. Yes, we will rebuild. George W. Bush over New Orleans, or was it Obama? Yes, we will rebuild. And there's that pivotal moment. And then nothing follows up with it. Labor, Liberal, anyone. Mm. Um, and these extreme floods, 
which have hit, I'm sure, everyone in the audience knows someone in the last few weeks from North Manly to Mullumbimby to the Sunshine Coast is affected. Their lives are affected. They've just had two years of COVID. And it's a, a, a tragedy, some bits of it which can be avoided. Mm. And does anyone else have any thoughts on what Esther Well, said? I think it also take. I mean, you know, picking up Esther's point, you know, short-term politics, um, you know, and I remember when I was working in government, we got a lecture about the fact that, you know, no longer are we looking at the four-year poll, we're looking at the daily poll. And, yeah. and mm. you know, I was even seeing premiers change within parties, you know, so it was just a nightmare. Um, so I, I think that really contributes to it. And they play to the emotion there has been some moves, and I was only thinking about that coming here. I know Port Ferry, um, at one point they were sort of having a thing with Victorian coastal towns that you were supposed to have a stay and retreat plan. So the plan was, is your town going to stay or is your town going to retreat? And if they did that, they would have a planning system that supported them to retreat mm. and start to move their town up. Now, Port Ferry decided no because they have... Um, a lot of heritage that they felt was really valuable. But they have done things mm. to actually change how they build in new areas and they've just gone, no, that's not going to happen there or if that happens there, this is how you're going to have to approach it as a build. Mm. Um, but it's not happening enough. And we have, in fact, had one um, situation with one of the bushfires from 2020 and, and apparently they've disbanded again. Um, but we had a, a bushfire expert panel or an expert panel, I can't remember all the terminology, it kept changing its name for a while there. There was an architect on board, Shelley Penn, um, and they determined that our client could not rebuild, even though council had been trying to tell them they couldn't rebuild there and the CFA were trying to tell them they couldn't rebuild there. It needed the expert panel to come in and say, mm. sorry, you just can't rebuild there. And they've built further down. So even then they're, sorry, they're going to build further down. And even then they've moved from a flame zone, but a really intense flame zone, to a Bell 29, which is, for those of you who don't know, is less. Um, so, you know, and I think a politician actually did cry out and said perhaps we shouldn't be rebuilding in these places. And, of course, mm. it was too, too much too soon after the event. But I did think to myself, I don't know if he's wrong, mm. you know, about... You know, it was just too much too soon in, in the emotion of it all. But I think that's another factor. And, um, yeah, and I think in answer to your point, it is something that we we need to start talking to people about being strategic in a planning sense. Mm. Um, and But I totally take on board what Esther's saying and I'd never thought about the complexity of property and taxes mm. and how it really is our whole economic, economic system. Thanks for that, Esther and Kim. Do we have any more questions from the audience? Hello. Um, so there's been a bit of a common thread um, tonight about special skills. Um, and I was just wondering if you, all four of you, imagine yourselves as like a, a special type of person with a special set of skills and experience, or if they're like, or can you imagine a, a pipeline, a, a training or an education system for this kind of work, if that makes sense. Yes, enrol at the RMIT, Master of Disaster <laughs> Design and Development. Just to say, this is a first degree um, outside of Europe that is about training the next generation, not only of design professionals, 50% of our cohort are designers, the rest come from community 
work, business, law, insurance. Um, and our students, it's only been running for six years, get jobs very quickly. Sustainability Officer, City of Port Phillip, they're working with Arab, AECOM, GHD, the World Bank. Um, and there is this hunger for people who want to transition their careers um, into this sector. So I think I'll just give an example of an architect I know in Sydney, Phoebe Godwin, did her architecture degree, I'm thinking about 15 years ago, University of Sydney. During her studies, she was, this is what I want to do. I want to work in the humanitarian sec system. She then went and worked for the late Paul Faleros, who some of you might know, Health Habitat, who's a, a legend in his own time. Um, got experience on the ground working for Indigenous communities. She said, I really want to work in international development. Didn't have a job. Funded, worked on construction sites. Then got a job as an intern at UNHCR in Geneva in their shelter division. But she had to also fund herself to be fluent in French before she took up that job. She was very determined, Phoebe. <laughs> Ten years later, she's running the biggest camp planning programs in Mexico, Bangladesh. I met her in the Al-Zatari camp in Jordan. So Phoebe was very purposeful at, in her early 20s, this is what I want to do. And um, I had this sort of bizarre idea that, you know, the UN would sort of take anyone when I graduated. And then I was told by somebody who worked in the system, well, you'll spend the first year on the photocopier. And I was like, oh, well, that wasn't really what I was thinking, you know. Um, but it's and I know some colleagues here who, the NGO sector is the toughest sector to almost get into. Mm. A lot of the heads of NGOs, of World Vision, they've come from the corporate sector and they themselves will work for KPMG or work for BHP. They themselves are doing these jobs, not for the money, but because they want to change the world through changing sort of business paradigms. Mm. So, um, I think if you think this is your thing, then there are channels now that simply weren't there. Um, there are disaster management degrees at Deakin, at Charles Darwin University, at Newcastle. Um, ours is the only degree embedded in an architecture school. Um, and our, I think out of everyone in the architecture faculty at RMIT, ours had the highest employability index because the jobs are there. People can't fill these jobs of, um, you know, Chief Resilience Officer, City of Port Phillip, all, I said, Arab and AECOM are screaming out for architecture plus skills. Where are the project management skills? Where are the urban resilience skills and all that kind of thing? So I think it's a fantastic time if you have a passion um, because there are pathways now that simply were not there 10 years ago. Mm. And does anyone else have anything to offer after Esther? Sorry, I was a bit kind of <laughs> forceful about my day job there. That's okay. Um, but no, I think it's true. I think um, Esther's course is amazing. I actually just did a day session that you had one time. Um, I think the course is fantastic and it's it's really helpful. Otherwise, I think, you know, your point earlier was you must have a, you have to have a lot of runs on the board to get into those positions. Exactly. Like you said, you've either somebody who's been in corporate, so you have this body of knowledge to bring in 
or if you're starting in and you want to get in, then I think your course is amazing for that. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I think it's time to wrap up. So that brings us to the end of the event. So let's first give a round of applause to our fantastic speakers for your insight. Thank you. I think all of us have learned a lot from them today. And also, I'd like to make a couple of quick thank yous to our sponsors, Hames Paint and Bink Windows, Grace for her invites, M Pavilion, and of course, the audience for being here today. And if anyone is interested in joining our mailing list, um, you have Kirsten there with notepads taking up contact details. So um, thank you again. Have a good night. I hope you all reach home safe. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Akila. Thanks, Akila. Thank you. Thanks, Akila. You're listening to an Empavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you.